Coming up on Tech Nation, how we came to question climate change, to even question the science. What's it all about? Nathaniel Rich, the author of Losing Earth, a recent history, will explain. It's not about the science. It's about money and power and politics and unapologetically the bottom line. Then Tech Nation Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft talks about what we probably all thought was coming. The age of the selfie has now been supplanted by something new. We're now commencing on the age of the medical selfie. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2016, I spoke with the founding executive editor of Wired magazine, Kevin Kelly, about his book, The Inevitable, Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. I had just asked him, Twelve technological forces, not ten, not three, but twelve? It's an arbitrary number. These are umbrella categories that I put a lot of related things together. There could have been 11. There could have been 15. It's not really that important. The idea is that there's handfuls. There's there's a dozen or so long-term trends that you could think of as long-term trajectories in technology, kind of like a like a bias. It's like, kind of like Ooh. a bunch of biases that technology has. These technologies are not stopping. They're moving forward. They actually act like forces. Yes, right. It's a force uh, or, or an urgency like gravity, right? I mean, so, so this is what the word inevitable means. It's it's going downhill whether we want it to or not. There's a force there. But it's a, it's a kind of a, a bias or leaning. And therefore, when you're working against it, you're kind of like going uphill, so to speak. And a lot of people are working against it. Um, the music industry, for instance, worked against one of these trends for years and years because the Internet is the world's largest copy machine. Yeah. Anything that can be copied, <laughs> it touches the Internet, it will be copied. Yeah. And so you can't stop the copying. That's inevitable. It's just going to copy more and more. And so the music industry was copy protection and outlawing this and prohibiting that kind of stuff. It doesn't work because they were going against the grain. There was a gravity towards more copying. And so it took them 30 years to kind of beginning to accept the fact that they can't stop the copying. So the kinds of forces I'm talking about are inevitable and large scale like that, in that similar sense that there's kind of a gravity to them. And they they interact. They're codependent. One of the forces is this idea that we're kind of moving to these ubiquitous screens that are everywhere where, where every Everything is more liquid and, and fleeting and ephemeral and flowing. That unlike a book, which I just wrote called The Inevitable, which is... <laughs> Do I have one of the paper copies? <laughs> exactly. Which is fixed, finished, monumental in a certain sense. It's, it's, it's impermanent. It's, it's, I mean, it's permanent. And, 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 and so it doesn't change. Whereas on the screen, everything is fluid, moving, flowing. We stream our music, we stream our movies, we stream up, you know, Facebook updates. All this kind of stuff is flowing. It's never finished. It's always in progress. It's being updated. And that is a different culture, really. Um, and that's also dependent on these other things like flowing and, and intermixing and remixing. So there is a sense in which this is kind of an ecosystem of different forces. And they're all kind of codependent upon each other. 
in fact, when you look at anything that's moving on a screen, you actually don't know if it's being replayed from some hard disk or some uh, piece of vinyl, or it's flowing over the right. of the internet of something. You know, right, right, right. <laughs> and, and and one of the big innovations, I would say, in some senses, starting with the written language, which was this ability to. Um, Reread something to 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 scroll back. I mean, we don't we don't we we kind of scroll back when we're reading and we read again. Well, we've moved that ability to kind of go back into movies, moving images, sound, and more and more of our lives where we can kind of scroll back and rewind it. And that ability turns out to be really really fundamental. And one of the reasons why commercials are now seen as an art form is because you can watch them anytime you want, rewind them, watch them over and over again, and things like the GIF or the GIF loop where you take some little moment and you just replay it again and again, you, you are able to study it and it kind of transcends itself. And so that is another aspect of the streaming, which we can actually stop and rewind, which is this magical thing that we only recently invented. This 2016 Tech Nation interview features Kevin Kelly, the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine, and his book, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Among his many present activities is founding editor and co-publisher of the Cool Tools website at cooltools.com. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Nathaniel Rich about how we developed the perception that the science around climate change was based on questionable science. It didn't have anything to do with science at all. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the natural extension to the selfie. You can figure it out. It's the medical selfie. When I first saw Nathaniel Rich's book, Losing Earth, a recent history, I thought, it's doomed. Another climate change book, another scientist pleading for people to listen. And then I realized Nathaniel Rich is not a scientist. I am decidedly not a scientist. Yeah, I topped out at, I think, AP Physics, maybe, in high school. Ooh, still uh, impressive. Yeah, well, impressive. I didn't do very well, I should say. No, I'm a novelist, and I, I write um, narrative uh, nonfiction as well. And uh, I was struck by the fact that nobody had really taken uh, that approach to this subject, uh, which I think is the great subject of our, our time. And you're right, it tends to be written about in a very narrow way. Um, you know, the sort of scientific story, the political story, sometimes the economic story. Uh, but it's rare that we, uh, anyone sort of examines the human story. And that's, that's where I felt I could make a contribution. You opened the book, in fact, with a simple sentence. Nearly everything we understand about global warming was understood in 1979. I mean, we're talking over 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, a great climate scientist uh, in Stanford, uh, Ken Caldera, who told me that every semester 
he starts off his graduate classes with this trick question, basically, which is to say he asks his students to identify any developments in the fundamental science of climate change since 1979. Uh, and of course, nobody can do it because there haven't been any fundamental Keep Googling. Keep Googling. Maybe yeah. you'll find it. You know? Well, there's been more data. There's been there's more specificity. And, you know, there's there's a, the predictions are sort of less hazy. And when we talk about regional effects and things like that, but no, the basic science has been agreed upon since 1979. And I should say that the very fundamental science, essentially the idea that CO2 is a greenhouse gas and the more we burn fossil fuels, the more CO2 is in the atmosphere and, and the more that will heat up the planet. That's been understood since the 19th century. And that's been happening through the Industrial Revolution. We've had a, almost just a two centuries of uh, solid burning of fossil fuel, which did not exist previously. Right. And not only has it been consistent, but it's uh, been rapidly accelerating uh, over those those centuries to the point where there's been more carbon dioxide contributed to the atmosphere since uh, 1989, which is when the, the action in, the, in my book ends, than in all of civilization before that. Now, following on that initial sentence, shortly thereafter, you write perhaps an even more important sentence, and within it, a, a very important phrase. You say, today, almost nine out of 10 Americans do not know that scientists agree well beyond the threshold of consensus. There's the important one. Well beyond consensus. It's not open for question. Human beings have altered the global climate through indiscriminate burning of fossil fuels. It's not a question of, well, we, we look, it look, the data looks pretty good and we, it's, it's a theory. We know it. It's proven. Yeah, we've known it for 40 years and, and there's been extremely solid consensus. And that that's really why I felt that I didn't want to waste time engaging in that old debate about, you know. Debate's over. The science is real. Yeah, I, I felt that that has been done uh, ad infinitum. And at this point, if you, you know, if you continue to try to have that conversation with people who are, you know, intent on having it in, in bad faith, there's, you're just playing into the game. And so... Just as the science was settled back then, I also felt that it was not worth dwelling on it beyond establishing the basic facts. And, and in fact, the story is what happens after the science is settled, 1979, when you have the first efforts to try to solve the problem. And it's, that's what Losing Earth is. It's the story of essentially the, the birth of climate activism. So let's get into the money, the power, human frailty, the oh-so-human endeavor to do the right things individually and collectively. And so let's start where you start. Let's start with Rafe Pomerantz. Yeah, Rafe Pomerantz is just a uh, fascinating, brilliant, uh, charismatic, pretty hilarious guy. <laughs> um, and he, in 1979, he had been, he was about 32. He had been working for his whole 20s on Clean Air Act amendments from in the 1970s uh, that were passed in 77. Um, he was an air guy and an activist. He worked at Friends of the Earth. And um, he was essentially in the position that I think all of us are in to some extent or find ourselves at some point when we come to terms with the size of the problem, which is that 
he comes across the issue in a government obscure government report that he's just reading in his office. And, uh, and let's be clear, historians read text like scientists do. You know, one line at a time, one context, this reference is this, what's the thing, do I understand where I am? I mean, I think a lot of scientists don't know that about historians, and historians don't know that about scientists, but we're talking about really careful reading these huge government reports and this little paragraph jumps out at him. Yeah, and he's he is trained as a historian. He went to Cornell, um, and he's yeah, page sixty something of this government pamphlet. It, it mentions that uh, human beings burning fossil fuels will warm the planet and lead to these devastating cataclysmic consequences. And he's confused because he figures that you know surely if somebody uh, if this was real, someone would have told him as one of the leading. Sort of did policy they, wonks. Did on they bury Hill. the lead, as we said? Right, exactly. And so he assumes he must be confused. He's not a scientist. And he should. But then a couple of days later, he reads an interview with a very prominent scientist, Gordon McDonald, who's essentially the chief scientist for the CIA at the time. And McDonald's become very concerned about the issue. And Pomerantz basically responds as I think any of us would respond, or, or as you see people, you know, the scientists in the first scene of the disaster movies respond when they see the alien entering the stratus, alien ship entering the stratosphere, which is to say, gee, we better tell some people about this. Uh, and surely, once, once some powerful folks understand what's going on, they will act. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. And so they. Just, just like in the books, just like in just the movies. Just like in the movies, yeah. yeah. You run to sort of central command. And, and that's basically what he does. And he, he goes on this, this sort of amusing um, tour of Capitol Hill with Gordon McDonald. This sort of. He's a draft dodger. McDonald is essentially the brains of the military industrial complex. They're both really concerned about this problem. And they go knocking on the door of every powerful person in, in, in D.C. and, and t- explaining the situation. Uh, McDonald does a kind of lecture on the on the history of the the science, and they work their way up to the president's Jimmy Carter's own science advisor Frank Press, another very distinguished older scientist, and explain the situation to him uh, and assume that he will surely take action, uh, and he does sort of, which is to say he does. What I, I guess is 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 considered action within the government, but I think the rest of us would consider inaction, which is he asks for a bunch of scientists to do another report, and that comes back. Um, that's the Charney report. It it validates everything that McDonald and Pomerantz had said, um, and and again, it's it seems like they're on the verge of of action, and yet. Um, Carter shortly out of office and, and Reagan comes in. At one point, you recount Rafe Pomerantz speaking to a young Al Gore and saying, you know, don't rely on the scientists. You know, it's not their job. The politicians have to do it. And politicians have many different backgrounds. You don't always get a, a prime minister like uh, Margaret Thatcher with who studied chemistry at Oxford. She got it. We sort of see that woven throughout the book, wherever we're going. You know, is this a business person with what kind of a background do you have? How they're able to grasp or, as we used to say, grok the story really depends a lot, not just on the power, the ability that what they have, but what their background is. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Al Gore. I mean, Gore uh, had this, this serendipitous um, – experience of having taken an undergraduate class at Harvard with Roger Revelle, who um, the same group of scientists as Frank Press and uh, Gordon MacDonald, uh, advisor to presidents. And he was the first really prominent scientist to 
bring national attention to global warming, prospect of global warming, way back in the 1950s. And he had published a major paper on the subject, 56, 57. And, and Gore happened to take one of his classes and, and Ravel explained the science in the class and, and, and Gore was uh, frightened and had the same response basically that, that uh, Pomerantz had, which is to say, you know, good, good Holy heavens. Moly, Holy it's moly, real. Right? it's real. We better, someone better figure this out. And, and, and no one had by the time he became a junior congressman from Tennessee. And, and so Gore thought, well, surely if we get Ravel, my old teacher, to come and explain to Congress what he explained to me, uh, this body will have no choice but to act. And of course, he holds that hearing, 1980, and uh, very very few congressmen are present. Almost nobody else is present, and it passes uh, unnoticed, just about. And but that's the beginning of a process that that Rafe Pomerantz is very much uh, behind as well to try to. Uh, essentially grab the lapels of anybody who, who, who in power, ultimately then of the public, um, and force them to understand what's ha- what was happening and what, what had to be done. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Nathaniel Rich. You may know him from his work in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, or the New York Review of Books, or from his novels, most recently, King Zeno. He's best known around these parts for his 2005 San Francisco Noir, the city in film noir from 1940 until the present. Formerly the fiction editor at the Paris Review, his latest book is Losing Earth, a recent history. Bouncing around here a bit through these stories, which are both individual yet interwoven, um, it's not just about science. I mean, engineers study science, and yet some engineers either rejected it or thought technology could uh, outpace it, outrun uh, what we were seeing here. Um, and here's a familiar name, John Sununu, White House Chief of Staff under the first President Bush. He had a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering from MIT. He thought the science was questionable. Yeah, Sununu is a fascinating case. I mean, you're right, there are there are earlier, there are people in the 80s starting in sort of around 80. Two and eighty-three. Once you have these, you have a major comprehensive government report that year called "Changing Climate." Um, when even Roger Revelle, you know, concludes, uh, "Yes, this is this is very serious," but you know, we don't need to to go out of our way to to address it this minute, and which has a, a deadly, you know, a fatal effect on on the momentum. Um, but by the end of the decade, uh, after a number of sort of high-profile events and James Hansen testifying before Congress and the success of the ozone treaty, um, there is a clear path towards what is seen at the time as a global solution, uh, a a binding international treaty to reduce carbon emissions. Um, And that's when John Sununu enters the stage and he's a PhD in in engineering um, and and he's in some ways sort of patient zero of the climate denialism because he is the first – prominent person to say, well, hold on. I don't know if I don't necessarily believe that the science is, is and major credentials. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a PhD. He's he considers himself an old engineer, even though at that point he'd been uh, governor of New Hampshire for two terms and um, was then chief of staff for, for George H.W. Bush, who he was credited with 
having delivered the uh, candidacy uh, in New Hampshire after Bush had lost in Iowa in the primary. Uh, Sununu sort of used his political machine to help elect Bush. Um, he was rewarded with this position of enormous power within the administration. And he has an MIT, MIT professor. Set of degrees yeah. and professor. Yeah, yeah, and a professor about public policy and science. And so he both has a skepticism about the science based on his own training in engineering, which is you know, a different discipline than um, the kind of work that James Hansen, the NASA scientist, and others are doing at the time around uh, global warming. But he has that – he has this scientific skepticism and it's powered by kind of ideological um, skepticism. He has this, this conspiratorial theory about um, leftist forces, sort of this cabal of mysterious leftist forces that use – over over the decades, have used um, scientific theory to advance what he calls an anti-growth policy, and so he he gives he gave as an example, um, you know, the population scare, population bomb um, in the seventies. That'd be the Paul Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich. Uh, discussions at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, he he feels that climate change is part of this 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 history, and and so he you know it's it's a bit. Contorted. The, I find the, the thinking a bit contorted, and and but of course, there's it's a version of what now has become mainstream ideology within the Republican Party. But at the time, he had to. There was no one else saying these things, so he had to basically go around the Bush administration and explain what he was talking about, both the science that it was unsettled and this sort of nefarious theory about um, how these forces were using it um, and wanted to destroy American growth, and. And so you have this this odd uh, turn of events in the first year of the George H.W. Bush administration where um, though Bush has spoken very strongly about the need for a treaty and, and the need to solve global warming, he campaigned on it. And the head of his EPA, William Riley, um, has also very strongly in favor of this of this path. Uh, Sununu's not and, they, and there's, a, there's a kind of dogfight within the, the White House uh, – and they go back and forth, and Bush, Bush's own public comments, um, sort of change depending on on whether Riley or Sununu wrote his last speech, basically on the <laughs> subject. And so he's all over the map. And at one point, uh, Sununu and Riley, like like two squabbling siblings, go to the president and say, uh, "We we disagree. You know what what should we do?" Um, and Bush says essentially, uh, "Well." You guys figure it out for yourselves and tell me what you know. I'll, I trust you can figure it out for yourselves and tell me what you decide. He wasn't really engaged in a in a meaningful way. I didn't really understand the science. Is, is my sense from the reporting? And Sununu, as the more powerful person in the administration, was ultimately able to win or at least uh, defeat any any serious commitment by the United States to a to an agreement and. Uh, in retrospect, that that moment where the U.S. drops out of any kind of binding um, treaty to reduce carbon emissions is the closest that we've come uh, since to a, to a, a major global solution on the subject. The Big Bang of climate denial. Yeah, right, right there, and right in front of you. Well, as it turns out. You know, yours is not an explanation of the science by the scientist, and you're trying to shake the reader into into action here. But it's rather a story or a series of of interwoven stories about humans. And it's a form, as I understand it, of 
historical narrative. And for scientists and engineers, and actually everyone, they need to know what's true and what did you make up and how did you get it into story form? Sometimes you have to lose or or color. Tell us, tell us how that works for you. Oh well, it's all true. Um, it's all true. It's all, all right. true. Got yeah, yeah. No, it's it's nonfiction. Even though he's known for being a novelist, it's, it's all true. true. It's it's all true. In fact, you know, an earlier version of the piece was published in the New York Times Magazine, and yeah, we had eight fact checkers working on it, and um, not only that, but the the level of um, of rigor for this this piece for the and for in the book was was higher than I think your, your typical historical narrative because it, it had to appear in the Times first and so what I mean by that <clears throat> is not to call most writers of popular histories uh, liars but I did I did discover upon you know as I was re- as I was working on the book I tried to see how other other writers handle difficulties you know with research and I I realized that actually in this genre you know if you're reading a popular history of uh, you know John Adams, or or the uh, you know the some some old uh, war. Um, you realize that writers often do take certain liberties, um, extrapolations, uh, and I couldn't do that because I was writing it for the, the Times Magazine. I didn't want to do that because I didn't feel like there was any. There's no need, need to. Story. Yeah. yeah, but but what it meant essentially is that if someone told me, you know, if Rafe Pomerantz said to me, um, I. You know, I remember standing up at that meeting and, you know, pounding the table and saying, we have to act now. Darn it. Um, It wasn't enough for him just to say that's how I remember it. I had to find I had to interview everyone else who was alive, who was in that room and see if they also remembered it. And if no one else remembered it, even if they said, oh, yeah, that sounds like something Rafe would have said. That wasn't good enough for the Times fact checker. So so it was that level of of rigor. and so that just meant, which I was grateful for, but it just meant I had to, t- it took an enormous <laughs> amount of time because people's memories aren't good and finding documentation is just, you know, takes a long good time. Good luck with that. Yeah, I have a new, newfound respect for, for historians, but no, it was a ton, it just meant I had to do a ton, ton of work and then figured out, had to figure out how to reconstruct it in, in a narrative form. So here we have the big New York Times and we have eight fact checkers and you're just trying to do your work here <laughs> good luck with that <laughs> yeah no it was um it was something else yeah well while the sununu episode we described may be the the big bang of the climate deniers throughout this period they expanded massively give us sort of a blueprint of what what that looks like yeah well i i mean i i learned in my reporting for the i think for the first time um, how exactly that strategy formed within the industry. Um, I had, you know, people who are writing about this issue now or scientists, you know, you can't get someone in from the industry to talk to a reporter, certainly not a New York Times reporter. Um, but, but my sources, for the most part, are out of the industry now because this is a period 30 years ago. They're retired. Some perversely have moved on to uh, careers in like green consulting Um one of that's true of one of my sources from the American Petroleum Institute, and so they were very frank and honest with me, and uh, they had nothing to hide from their perspective. And so, what happens is James Hansen um, gives this the NASA scientist gives this 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 major testimony in 1988 during the summer, the hottest summer on record uh, before uh, Al Gore's Senate committee, and he says. Uh, you know, it's time to stop waffling. Global warming is here. It's no longer a theory. We can see hard evidence of it in, in, in the temperature records. And it becomes a national story overnight. There's a huge amount of national concern. 
And at the highest levels of American Petroleum Institute and Exxon, the biggest oil, company, oil and gas company then as now, um, there are conversations about what do we do about what are we going to do about this? Because it seemed inevitable that some kind of policy was going to happen. George Bush was on his was stumping about it even. And so there are a couple of study groups that form, one at API, one at Exxon, and they both reach basically the same conclusions. I've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich, the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the medical selfie. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Nathaniel Rich. You may know him from his reporting in the New York Times Magazine and The Atlantic, or for his novels, most recently, King Zeno. Today we're talking about his latest book, Losing Earth, A Recent History, which tells the story of the resistance to the idea of climate change, specifically climate disruption due to the burning of fossil fuels, not by a small group of scientists who didn't believe the science, but rather as a strategy introduced by big oil. To be clear, Nathaniel's not a scientist, but you don't have to know any science to understand this story. Now back to our interview. At the highest levels of American Petroleum Institute and Exxon, the biggest oil, company, oil and gas company then as now, um, there are conversations about what do we do about What are we going to do about this? So there are a couple of study groups that form, one at API, one at Exxon, and they both reach basically the same conclusions, which are to say um, we need to engage politically with this. Um, we need to be part of any conversation about what about policy. We need to make sure that we emphasize any uncertainty in the science where it exists, which is not to say what 
you know, we need to say that the science is uncertain, which would happen later, but we need to say, you know, where there are uncertainties around the margins. We need to emphasize that. We need to um, make sure that no policy goes beyond what's warranted by the science. Um, again, this is it's all contain, you contain, know. yeah, make sure it's, res- yeah, be, and be a response. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of the one where they go a little bit further is they say we will not endorse any policy that will affect the bottom line. So this is the beginning of it. And it's it's not really different from what they do about it with any other environmental or health issue of which they have, you know, hundreds at any given time. Um, but but as sort of a sort of a side project, part of this, the American Petroleum Institute starts has their PR office start to do a few little things when they're not busy with more important matters. And and one of those things, you know, they talk to congressmen, they start to sort of lobby a little bit. Um, they and then they find some scientists. At first, it's about three or four guys, literally, uh, who they think um, they can be counted on uh, and have some skepticism about the, the science. Um, and they're close with the industry, and they start to even pay some of them two thousand dollars each. I, I learned in my reporting to write op eds uh, for publications, and all of a sudden, you start to see. And, and this is now nineteen eighty nine. Um, these names, these three or four guys popping up in articles in national publications uh, and changing the way the story is covered. Instead of it being a story of uh, sort of panic and, you know, how to respond, it's now there are now two sides. And so it plays right into this this fetish we have in, in sort of American journalism about, well, we have to have, you know, both sides of the story and – and you start to see, you know, cover articles in national publications saying maybe this is overblown. Maybe this isn't so bad after all. Or at the end of a covering this and they say, and of, but of course, you know, there is another side to this, which we're not going to talk about today, but we will mention. And it's like, no, there isn't. <laughs> well, yeah. And even at the time, it seemed it seemed a little peculiar. I, mean, I think science, the journal Science is a steam journal that year, 89, uh, published a story saying, What's up with these guys? They're, you know, there's literally four to however many hundreds are are thousands. You know, yeah, well, now thousands, but I think eighty nine. There were only so many people who were working on it, and uh, yeah, and, and and this is this is a bizarre phenomenon. But so essentially, this this effort by API's comms shop, which was two guy, two ex newspaper man who had been recruited to to, to run that office, um, had so much success that that's ultimately where the effort go it turned it turned into a pr effort and and this propaganda effort and dis, d- disinformation campaign grew and grew sort of more brazenly over the years they kept pushing it uh until you get to, into this delirium of of climate denialism which which we're still you know suffocated by to this day while together big oil is represented by the american petroleum institute Individual companies can do whatever they like. What do the individual companies do? Do we know? Well, they all – at first they all went along with this. Um, they uh, – you know, the American – the Global Climate Coalition was this sort of fake um, organization that was started by API and it was joined by just about all the major oil and gas companies and and this, this comms effort was run – was, uh, you know – was if if you got the press releases from them, it would say Global Climate Coalition, not American Petroleum Institute, and um, 
it was not until really the end of the 90s, once they'd really gotten pretty far out into denialism after around the time of the Kyoto um, IPCC meeting, uh, where API spent an enormous amount of money to thwart any any possibility of a U.S. um, uh, agreement, um, that a couple of companies, like I, I remember BP, for instance, starts start to become a little embarrassed by this kind of rhetoric. I mean, the sci- they've known full well the whole time that the science is real. Um, and, you know, this internal scientists within the industry are never really questioning it. Um, so you start to see a couple defections then, but it doesn't really change the conversation. And, and it's not like BP becomes a sort of savior of you know, the environmental movement, they continue with their operations as ever. But that's the first kind of sense of turning away from this, that this has gotten a little bit too crazy. Um, And those defections continued some, you know, until you have finally now, um, you know, there's no, none of the major oil and gas companies, um, say these things any more publicly doesn't mean they've they're good you know corporate citizens but but if you watch a national spot for exxon you'd think they were you know an algae company um and green energy company um sunshine and yeah and clean solutions you know all of that um but you know, we have this 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 bizarre uh situation now where the republican party is further to the right uh in their messaging than the industry itself uh, that it, we now have denialism uh, has become a central tenant to republicanism. Um, and and so you have this bizarre thing where it's the only major you know national party in the world that, that endorses these views, um, views that even uh, oil and gas industry itself would be ashamed to, to take up in a public forum. And the U.S. is a major producer of these burning fossil fuels. I mean, we're we're talking about a major contribution to the situation as it exists today. Yeah, we were number one back in in the '80s, and now China is ahead of us. Um, but it's also further along the you know, path towards uh, in green technology and 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 use of of renewables. Now, let's be clear. Alongside this, we have the United Nations. We have the I. PCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. How do they play in? What yeah, are those, guys, a, a what are those length, jokers doing? Yeah, you know? <laughs> a, t- a title about that, that gives you a good sense of the, the quality of the writing of the reports. Um, you know, they they get on the issue in the mid. It's formed in the in the mid eighties, late eighties, um, after the UN uh, through the WMO has helped to. Um, Bring into being the the ozone agreement, the Montreal Protocol, and it's it's believed that um, that will be the template for a CO two agreement. And so they start working uh, in earnest eighty seven eighty eight on a similar type of, of treaty, and that's the bind, this binding emissions framework. And um, they continue to work, of course, to this this day. But but the, these resolutions and these treaties that come out are sort of been increasingly less uh, powerful as the years have gone on. Until so you get to Paris, which is uh, voluntary, non-binding. Um, you know, each country sets its own uh, benchmarks, and in fact, within a, even just within the couple of years uh, since ratification. Um, most countries are not 
coming close to hitting hitting those benchmarks. So I think the UN's done, you know, the IPCC has done what it it can do, but if you don't have countries that are especially the most powerful countries are not interested in in a real solution, then it's not going to get very far. I should probably say that, you know, uh, one of my orientations here is I I worked so hard for so many years to be so respectful for everyone's opinion. And then when I finally read how the whole thing came about, it's like, wait a minute, (laughs) I got taken like everybody else. And here I am in the media trying to explain science. I really think that some of these terms the public can only keep in its mind for some number of years, and it's kind of old news. Well, I think the terms are deeply inadequate as well. One of the reasons I became interested in writing about this subject is that I felt the the language that we use is is itself a lie. I mean, uh, or at the very best, misleading. You have... You know, it was the CO2 problem originally, which doesn't seem like much of a problem since we all exhale CO2 with every breath. Uh, the greenhouse effect, um, which is not even descriptive really of, of, the, of the nature of the problem. Uh, global warming and climate change, um, you know, of course, our concerns not for the globe or for the climate, but for human civilization. And we still haven't uh, come, and I feel inadequate as a writer that I've, been, I've failed myself to come up with a better more descriptive term, uh, even climate crisis, which is now sort of more in, in vogue. I vote for your term, planetary asphyxiation. Yes. It's like, that's wow, even... you got my attention. <laughs> well, it's it's really civilizational asphyxiation, I guess, would be even more descriptive, though it doesn't really roll off the tongue. Um, but no, I think I think it's that's, that's a big problem. But I also think it's... Um, you know, the, sci- the, the basic science, all you have to know is that the more we burn fossil fuels, the more CO2 goes in the atmosphere and the warmer it's going to get. Uh, and I, I feel like that is the simple background that you hope everyone can understand or be communicated. Um, and if people then have questions about, well, why was it, why is it, you know, colder than normal on this given day in this given city, then you can go and explain that. But but I think that one of the the big um, triumphs of the of denialism has been to uh, f- hold the conversation at this very basic sort of square one um, locus, which is what's the science? Is the science real? What's you know? And 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 so even as it's sort of so disinformation and, and ignorance and all the rest, politicization. Um, it's also managed to keep us from talking about some really uh, important policy issues that we're going to have to figure out and over which, you know, reasonable people might disagree. Um, for instance, you know, what do we do about, uh, you know, out-of-work coal, coal miners, say? Um, what do we do, if anything? What do we – how do we do – what's the best form of a carbon tax or carbon pricing? Where should the proceeds from a tax go? Um, what exactly should we do about um, – bringing, say, nuclear technology to the developing world or or other technologies to help uh, developing countries modernize or escape um, crushing poverty uh, without having them resort to uh, huge, huge, you know, increases in coal combustion, things like that. So those are all, you know, they're, they're, they're different. You could imagine in like a functioning democracy, a sort of right-left divides on some of those issues. Um, but instead... Uh, but we've never progressed to that far where we're still on the science. And so that's why I feel like the this, this scientific conversation is a bit of a, uh, of, of a red herring. 
also what you were talking about are societal challenges. I think part of your your point in the book uh, is about a moral decision personally, even if you're in the depth of this and say, okay, we're part of this is the policy and we're trying to, it's like everybody literally has to look at themselves at this point. Yeah, I, I think I think it's the only honest way of understanding the issue that, you yes, you have these extraordinary, almost comic book level villains, um, you know, at, at Exxon and, and API and so on. Um, and it's not to let any of them off the hook, but I also don't think, I think we also have to acknowledge that we are all contributing to this problem, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, that any, even a homeless American contributes more, it's responsible for a larger carbon footprint than the average person in the, in the world, average global citizen. Uh, and so I think to understand, I think you do have to understand this issue as a moral issue, that this is an issue that affects um, the, our, our future and also um, worsens every form of injustice and inequality uh, just about that we have in our society. Uh, it victimizes the people who are already victimized by by our society. And, and so, so I think it one has to understand it as a moral question. And, and to do so means we have to understand the degree to which we're all responsible, not only for contributing to it, but for trying to do something about it. Um, and I think that's, that's really the reason I, one of the main reasons I wanted to write the kind of story that I, I wrote, a story about human beings, because I feel like these, some of these moral questions just have not been addressed in the literature on the subject. Uh, and what was striking to me about the stories of people like Rafe Pomerantz or James Hansen during during the decade I wrote about was that they were grappling with these these questions on a very personal, intimate level. Um, you know, way back in in the early 1980s, uh, when Rafe Pomerantz discovers that uh, the, discovers the problem, his wife is seven months pregnant, and he starts to wonder whether it's, you know, whether it's right to be having children. I think this is a kind of conversation that, um, you know, one hears more and more often. And my wife is currently seven months pregnant. It's, you know, it's a conversation that we've had. And, um, and I think, of course, people will have it increasingly in the years and decades ahead. But, um, you know, he was grappling with it back at the beginning. And, and I think in through through his story and, and stories of, of people like him, I think it's there's a way for us to try to understand these issues a little bit better ourselves. And I think that's that's a place where, where writing can make a contribution and, and literature on the subject can make a contribution. Well, I usually have this conversation right at the beginning of an interview. I think it's now important to have it at the end. Just sum up for us. What does science say is going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years if nothing changes? If nothing changes, um, things will get progressively bad. I mean, sea level rise, um, huge uh, you know, political destabilization, destabilization all over the world, um, hundreds of millions of, of uh, climate refugees – um, Already today, the Red Cross says that there are more climate refu refugees than violence refugees. Right. Yes, and and I think the way uh, that you know, certain food food crises, water shortages, um, and and I think the way that that people in the wealthiest um, parts of the world will feel the issue um, expressed most strongly. Uh, 
soonest is is in war. I mean, I think what we're talking about, you know, when you have tens of, tens of millions of people moving, say, from Africa into Europe, from South Africa, South America into North America, from the the coasts um, of of Southeast Asia in inland, um, you have a huge amount of stress on just about every kind of political system uh, and welfare system that that exists and um and all of these these sort of delicate regional truces we have uh now uh will will be really put to the test um and and in some of these places where the climate effects will be most serious um you have uh nuclear states and 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 so there's an enormous amount of risk it's 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 why I think the the uh, the State Department um, has refused uh, Trump and and others in his administration's efforts to try to get them to stop talking about this because they see this as one of the the if not the the, the major geopolitical um, uh, danger in the in the years ahead. Well, Nathaniel, I want to apologize for saying thinking your book was doomed in the beginning. I think it's anything but doomed, and it's a it's a very interesting example about how you can talk about complex science, complex issues uh, through the stories of of people involved in it over the years. You can actually bring it together through the people, not through the organizations, not through the official reports. And uh, it's, a, it's a good example of that. So I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thanks for having me. My guest today is Nathaniel Rich. His most recent novel is King Zeno, and his latest book is Losing Earth, a recent history. It's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Do you remember selfie sticks? Yes, some are still out there. Those collapsible sticks which hold your smartphone so you can take a picture of yourself. But more popular indeed are just plain old selfies, which people post on Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook and the like, or even print out and frame for their desk the old-fashioned way. But here's a new idea. Maybe we'll get in the habit of medical selfies. That's right. With all this new technology, we can pretty much check out our own health and the health of our families with what would be available to any of us. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft explains medical selfies. Well, we're in this age now of digital data. Um, We have our exponential technologies in our pocket. Our, our smartphones are really supercomputers. And now the cameras, as you've noticed on our mobile devices, have really accelerated. I don't even carry my LSR around anymore. Your Take what? My big old clunky camera. Your single lens reflex. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> carry, yeah. uh, I, I carry my, you know, my, my mobile phone, which does incredible portraiture and beyond and uh, is adding on all sorts of video capabilities as well. So that even medical selfies. Now, taking a picture of you can give you a clue into your health, a classic physician type element. We train to look at a patient, <laughs> so look at them. And you can look at the whites of someone's eyes. If their eyes turning a bit yellow, well, maybe it's a sign of some early liver failure. The bilirubin levels are high. Uh, now you can imagine your Facebook photos might screen your <laughs> face for early yellowing and give you a, a, a little ding. Um, you can see signs of stroke or signs as people uh, 
compare one photo to another that might be indicative of a medical problem. But more on the detail side, let's take a very common medical issue. Let's say a urinary tract infection. infection. Happens a lot. A, a UTI. And, you know, classically we'll want the patient to bring in some urine to the lab and look for bacteria, culture it. Um, we often do what's called a, a simple urinalysis. And many of you have seen a little dipstick and you compare the colors and they might change if there's blood or protein or uh, evidence of nitrates from bacteria. And that's often done by hand or even very spectrophotometers that will measure that very specifically in the lab. Now, we've seen several companies emerge where you can dip your urine dipstick, use the camera, which has now high resolution and very good color metrics, and take a picture of that dipstick, often with some uh, standard colors next to it, and do the auto urinalysis automatically. And now upload that data to the cloud and directly to your physician, who then might prescribe you a, a antibiotic, for example. There's a company out of Israel called Healthy.io that now has a product called Dip.io uh, that is in uh, drugstores in the United Kingdom, where you can go in and down do this at home. It's approved there. And so it's one market for, let's say, doing basic urinalysis if you have a potential infection. Pregnant women, for example, often check their urine. But another great example uh, is diabetic patients where their kidneys might be infected by diabetes. So what uh, this company specifically is doing is measuring protein using this approach and finding diabetes patients with early signs of kidney damage. So then the healthcare system, in this case the NHS, the National Health Service, is able to intervene early and hopefully prevent renal failure and folks ending up on dialysis and potentially even dying. So something as simple as a medical selfie there for your analysis can be effective. Or your camera might take a picture of a wound. Let's say you have a, a, um, a surgical wound. It could take a picture and analyze that and send it back to your surgeon or someone who might be bedbound and have an ulcer. So we can start to scale and measure these things and send them digitally to help do smarter intervention. All under the uh, umbrella of don't come in. <laughs> right, especially if you're infectious. Uh, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, there have been other ones that can uh, you can spit in a cup and it will uh, measure on a, on a sort of similar approach to the urinalysis whether you might have a respiratory tract infection like the flu. And so these technologies will impact public health and hopefully bring us better care at lower costs. Another more extreme example of a true selfie uh, in, I train in pediatrics, and we might see a, a young child which might have a genetic disorder. There's some classic facial features, for example, for a child with Down syndrome, with trisomy 21, which is a very most common genetic disorder. And a good pediatrician can recognize that. But there's hundreds or thousands of other genetic disorders that are hard to figure out. Well, there's a company that's used artificial intelligence and machine learning called Face to Gene, where they literally take a picture of the child's face, now compare that to a database of thousands of known genetically identified children and now can correlate what genetic disorder do they have and what genetic change do they have specifically. So it's going to hopefully speed up the way that we can identify a genetic problem and then intervene early without even doing a full-on genetic analysis. I have to say that this ability to to intervene early is absolutely key in so many things. We know that if we have a diseased organ or, or diseased tissue, but in many cases, for instance, in autism, we frequently don't diagnose fully until age four. And there are some new uh, gen genetic testing that is going on that can roll that back potentially to a year and a half. It means you can intervene early. And not only intervene early, but start to find different subtypes. There's another sort of medical selfie or medical video camera called Cocoon Cam, which uses just the video of a child sleeping in their crib. Now with 
certain software and AI can pick up the heart rate and the respiratory rate. Now also start to measure motion and listen to cry. And my hypothesis is as we crowdsource that data, we can start to identify children with autism at maybe three months of age and intervene even earlier. So we'll start to use these sorts of ubiquitous sensing technologies in powerful ways. I'll give you two more examples of a medical selfie that really go even medically inside. Uh, The idea of a home ultrasound. Imagine having a pocket ultrasound (laughs) and... (laughs) You know, it usually takes years of training, an ultrasonographer, you know, a medical license even. They're now coming onto the market, launched in early 2019, a company called Butterfly, has a basically consumer-level ultrasound, which has artificial intelligence sort of empowering it. So an exam can be done by almost anybody, helps guide where you'd put that to look at your heart or at your kidneys. This is particularly useful in the developing world where there's not a lot of high-tech expensive ultrasound. So we're really starting to spread these technologies to your own home and pocket to look really inside, the true inside selfie, all the way to emerging markets where a nurse practitioner or a a midwife could do a better job of identifying a problem and correcting it. The idea of a selfie goes beyond just, you know, physical features. You can even look at measures that are in your blood or literally your blood level. Uh, Published earlier this year was an approach where you can take a picture of your fingernails um, and it would be within about five percent, let's say, or one percent of your actual hemoglobin level identified by the, the color of your of your fingernails. So literally another screening approach for folks who might have a risk of anemia or low blood levels can be detected with your smartphone camera and an app. Still in the academic space today, but maybe an important screening way to do your own medical selfie or medical fingernail picture in the future. Well, what do they think of bubblegum pink? I'm just asking here. You're the doc, you know. <laughs> well, always have. It's always going to be confounding variables. You know, but part of this trend of the medical selfie or the home ultrasound or even companies with a, a, a pocket stethoscope called the Echo, also powered by AI that not only listens to your heart sounds but also uh, does an EKG at the same time, is that we'll be more empowered to do triage, pick up our own problems in the safety and privacy of our own homes and then hopefully get the full-on medical attention we need early or be reassured that we're doing okay. Well, everybody can't have my plan, which is see you every so often. Say, what do you think? How am I doing? I'm your... your Not your doc in the pocket, but the doc in the studio. Doc in the studio. And uh, everybody else has got to rely on this tech. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.